Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. This episode of the Smart Economy Podcast is part of the inaugural series focusing on decentralized autonomous organizations, better known as DAOs. In episode three of the DAO series, I chat with Yev Mushnik, founder of Launch Legal, a law firm headquartered in Denver, Colorado. Yev's firm operates using a distributed services model and supports entrepreneurs and innovators across a variety of industries, including blockchain, health, agriculture, education, and financial tech, space, and energy. Examples of legal and advisory services her firm offers include fund formations, crowdfunding, corporate governance, and much more. In this conversation, Yev and I discuss her journey into the legal field and eventually blockchain, the differences between projects in bull and bear markets, the various types of DAOs Yev has advised and heard of, participating in DAOs related to humanitarian efforts and employee services, DAO tooling, the future of DAOs, and much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial or legal advice, and that the host or guests may hold any tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Yev, and I hope you'll enjoy the conversation too. Thank you, Yev, for coming to join the new revamped Smart Economy podcast. We have Yev Muchnik, who's joining us today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Dylan. Yeah. You're the first like lawyer I've ever had come on the podcast. So I guess this is the part where we say anything we talk about here isn't legal advice. Thank you for uh, for taking the words out of my mouth. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's no financial or legal advice. And I am not your lawyer, but I am who wins. <laughs> so. And then also to get uh, another like conflict of interest out of the way, you are a lawyer for Neo News Today. We incorporated after we became a validator node. So Yev helped us set up our business too. So this is really cool to be able to bring the worlds together. It is. Yeah, coming full circle. We've never had a lawyer on the pod. So maybe we can just like kind of start off with your legal journey. Where did you go to undergrad? Where'd you go to grad school? Where did you like fall in love with the field of law? Well, I say I'd probably say that I fell in love with the field of law when I was maybe in second grade, but it was in competition with being a veterinarian and a policewoman as well. Um, <laughs> so I guess this profession prevailed somehow. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of had a, a slightly nonlinear path into my profession. Um, and so far as I went to undergrad at the University of Colorado, in the middle of my undergrad degree, I went and studied abroad in Paris and was learning French and doing online classes. And then found out that you could do your law degree in the UK as an undergraduate degree. So you didn't have to finish your undergrad to apply for kind of big postgraduate education. And we had friends in England. I applied just like randomly, not, not even knowing really how the English system worked. Got in, had a scholarship and I was like, okay, I guess this is the way the wind is going to blow. And moved to England and started studying law while I was still studying uh, for my undergrad. So I decided to do both at the same time. I was taking a couple of online classes, 
during law school, coming back uh, in the summer and taking a full load and ended, ended up graduating from law school before I graduated from undergrad. So a lot of people ask me why I went to law school in the UK, and it's really for no real logical or rational reason. It just so happened. Uh, but it was a really good choice. And at that time, you could go to law school for £7,000 a year compared to something like $150,000 here in the US. But I definitely fell in love. I think I knew I wanted to do transactional law and um, I was drawn to M&A and business activity, just innovation and, and movement. But that was also competing with um, doing human rights law. So <laughs> I think in my life, you know, you kind of had these like extreme opposites. Um, and I did end up pursuing a master's in human rights law as well. So I kind of was able to get that a little bit out of my system and then also in a way incorporate that into my practice now and in, in th- through practicing in Web3 and, and, and dealing with kind of decentralized companies that are are doing something for for good. So and after you finished um, your undergraduate degree, which was wrapped into also getting a law degree, which is awesome, I went to graduate school for for planning, which felt like um, I was repeating efforts because I got an undergraduate degree in planning, but I had to get a degree through an accredited university. So I knew when I graduated undergrad that I wanted to hit the ground running, but couldn't because I needed to get a graduate's degree. So after you got your law degree, were you able to just kind of like jump into cutting edge tech? Were you doing patenting? You said you also studied uh, human rights law. So were you also able to, like, where did the direction take you after you graduated? I mean, you're in London and did you come back to the States? Did you start working with British companies? So I ended up, I came back to the States. I did some summer internships at law firms in the, in England, came back to the States, applied to sit for the bar in New York did a little bit of traveling in Australia and New Zealand, living out of camper van, and then took the bar and was recruited to my first job, which happened to be in Moscow in 2008. So I worked for a large international law firm called Squire Patton Boggs, did M&A, private equity, international cross-border transactions. And then only did my LLM or master's degree after I had already been qualified to practice. So I think a lot of people um, do it a little bit differently. But as I mentioned, I kind of I started my first years as an associate in a really tumultuous financial time, and so everybody was really trying to find ways to keep their job, <laughs> keep relevant, and, and keep their heads out of the chopping block. So that was kind of a way to to try to preserve my position, and, and I did that in DC. And the tumultuous time is this during the housing crisis? Yeah, this is 2008. So when I when I just started, the market was just, or when I was recruited, actually, um, the market was just hot. It was especially the Russian market and having the Russian language, even though I'm originally from Ukraine, but having preserved the Russian language into my adulthood, that was such a huge asset for me because there were so many deals, so much activity going on in, in Russia. So they had recruited me. Um, and then like it, it, the ball hit a little bit after it did in the, in the U S with the Lehman brothers, but it hit and then it just went, it just froze. <laughs> and so it was a scary time. I think I still have PTSD since that time, but I probably always will. Yeah. I mean, I graduated into that world and it was hard to, um, even get started 
uh, to get the, the ball rolling. But that's really interesting that you were working on MMA in Russia. So were you doing dealing with like a lot of commodities? Were you dealing with oil and gas? What were kind of, I guess, the international sort of transactions you were making that might have started leading to the path that you're in now in Web3 and crypto? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, there was a, in the private equity space, there's a huge boom in technology and venture capital. And I think that's really what kind of planted the seed. When I moved over to DC, I did anti-corruption work, white collar investigations, so kind of reoriented a little bit to, to keep relevant because there was a lot of that going on. And then after spending some time in DC, I was recruited to a general counsel position at a publicly traded tech company. And that's really kind of where I think I, you know, firmly understood that that was the right place for me, the technology world. And then about four or five years after that, um, I fell into the blockchain legal rabbit hole. <laughs> I think that's when we met. Yeah, we. I was actually looking back at our first correspondence, and we met at the old Rhino Booze Hall during uh, Startup Week in 2018. And that's where I also met like Dan Shields and a bunch of other really, uh, for me back then, formative people in the local Colorado blockchain community. It, it was called the Blockchain Hub, actually. I have a note here. Mm-hmm. So back then, you know, I think you'd you'd probably been working with like a handful of crypto-oriented companies. This was like just after the 2017 ICO boom. So how did you end up start working with um, cryptocurrency or blockchain companies? Was it during the ICO boom? Was it slightly after? What were the types of people and conversations you were having then? <laughs> oh, I always uh, think back to those fun days. But yeah, it was right at the about 2017. Um, started working with a couple of of new projects. You know, wanting to raise capital, wanting to issue tokens, and I don't think I will ever, ever, ever remove from my brain um, the vision of a potential client coming in for a meeting at our offices. And I know that we're not on video, but but, um, literally taking his hand and showing us how he's there to print money. And and then just that, that the visual or his like gesture of standing there, not knowing at all what what, like the business plan he had, but just telling us that we're all going to be rich and, and, you know, meeting on islands with yachts and stuff. And, and then I, we didn't proceed with engagement with him, obviously, but but we had a couple of those types of interactions. You know, a lot of people just wanting to get rich quickly. And, you know, some did and some had successful projects that are still around or successful teams. And a lot, it's the majority, like 90%, just kind of fizzled out and have never seen them again. Yeah. And these were just like teams with, recently put together white papers and just trying to jump on board to the hype wagon. Yeah. White papers. I don't know if that's, if that's even the proper word for them because there isn't much like actual intellectual thought going into those pieces of, I don't know, toilet paper is what they were. And were you, were these individuals you were meeting, were they mostly local or were, cause, cause my understanding is the clients you work with now, and we'll get to what you do now, but my understanding is you're you're kind of working at a global level, international level. So back in 2017 and 18, when we first met, were you dealing with mostly clients you met in Colorado, or were you still being connected with individuals across the world and across the country? What was like the pipeline, I guess you could call, uh, to clients? It primarily, it was, it was local. You know, we 
Colorado is great because it has such an active community. And so we would have, I don't know if you recall how many meetups a week of different, like, or multiple meetups a night even happening. And so just meeting people there, going to those, learning how to, how to code, right? Like how to like just all type, there was like blockchain and beer. There was like learn like blockchain 101, whatever it was, there were so many like inclusive groups. And so out of that, we drummed up a lot of a lot of potential clients and then and then started going to all of the conferences as well. And so getting kind of a little bit more of a broader national reach. I remember going to consensus in 2018 um, and meeting a lot of folks from Denver there, but also just from everywhere. I ran into somebody actually just very randomly. I ran into the husband of a woman that I worked with at my first job in Moscow. And he was also working on a, on a web three startup at that time. And he was registering, you know, in the long line at consensus in New York. That's awesome. This, uh, this emerging industry creates a, an already small world. It creates a feeling that it's, that it becomes smaller so 2018 hits, uh, maybe start getting less of these unintellectual white papers. <laughs> Had Launch Legal, your company, uh, been formulated at this point? And if so, if most of your clients are like cutting edge Web3, innovative tech, by the time we met, that was the depths or like the, almost the very bottom of the bear market. But you still had to go through 2019 and you know until the boom again in 2020. So what were like the types of clients you were picking up after the ICO craze if you were still seeing interest in blockchain or Web3 type of companies? Yeah, good question. The bear market definitely hit and we felt it, at least I felt it in my firm. My foundation has always been corporate and securities. So, you know, I was kind of just shifted gears and, and kind of shifted the balance of the types of clients I was taking to... Well, at that point, it was probably like 80% that were more traditional startups, early stage companies looking to raise capital and just a handful of either clients that, that stuck with me from 2017 that had, you know, kind of that I had attracted during that initial ICO boom, you know, every now and again, just some projects, mostly on kind of corporate structuring, um, we definitely worked with. Opolis and the Employment Commons, and that was, you know, a big under legal undertaking during that time and structuring, basically the first DAO co-op, which we do a lot at the moment. Yes, I mean, so it was more of a trickle for sure, and and then you know, obviously DeFi summer hit and everything changed again. And so, like, what happened when DeFi summer hit? What were the types of people you were meeting? Were they still kind of like the like making the money? Kind of gesture people. <laughs> you know, a few of the DeFi folks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really, I mean, I have to say, like, having gone through 2017, 2018, 2019, uh, or 20, I guess, yeah, 2018, 2019, but I've had a lot of deja vu in the last two years with the conferences, with the bling, with the, you know, the Doge decked out car that we saw at East Denver, you know, that was very reminiscent of of what we saw back in the day. But um, yeah, I mean, a lot of DeFi, it was really heavy DeFi before it became really heavy DAO, which I feel like it's more focused now, but still, you know, a lot of capital formation and um, securities compliance and, and regulatory concerns. 
Yeah, I'm wondering because DeFi is built off of these protocols that anybody can provide liquidity and then you receive interest on that, you receive fees on that. Like the, the whole principle behind this is that you don't need a centralized entity. So it's kind of interesting that you're seeing a lot of clients or potential clients talking about DeFi when these are protocols that are distributed. So what are like some examples of businesses that needed to seek um, like local jurisdiction legal compliance if this industry is so decentralized? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of them were running, you know, liquidity pools and realizing that they were making a decent amount of monetary flow and, and proceeds from that. And they were just trying to figure out how to how to protect themselves, protect their teams, protect nodes, you know, and liability was, has always been a huge concern. Interesting. So even if like my name isn't on a DeFi protocol with an IP address that's based out of a local jurisdiction there that could potentially someday blow back on me if I don't have all my bases covered? Potentially, yes. Yeah. I know that uh, a lot of like questions of is this legal or is it not is always like, well, it depends. It depends. Yeah. That's the classic lawyer answer. So beyond kind of like the very showy, blingy Doge car Ferraris from 2017, 18 till today, like are a lot of the people that are starting to seek your legal advice is the concentration of people coming to talk to you is that increasing with more and more people who are bringing like solid, legitimate projects to you and less and less so like the vaporware white papers? Are you noticing like an actual trend upward towards serious, legitimate companies that seek your advice? I am. Yeah, I, I really, I've been blown away at some of the sophistication of, of knowledge around the legal issues. I think most folks that, that seek my services have done their diligence, have, you know, are, are really can even understand, you know, a lot of the exemptions, a lot of the comparative analysis that goes into jurisdiction, kind of identifying the correct jurisdiction for setting up your DAO or, you know, decentralized project or whatever it is. So the sophistication, the expertise, the teams are just so different. I don't, I'm sure you remember as well. And like, 2017, I don't know, it's like pre and post, right? And so you have the white papers with like like a thousand different like little circles of people there. And this is our team and this is what's gonna get us all this money. But it's it's really like legitimate folks and and yeah, innovators and and developers and technologists, and they're like thinking through tokenomics, they're thinking through launching and they're they're trying to do it in a sustainable way. It's not, you know, it's for the long term. Yeah, I think that's the the major difference after, I mean, DeFi Summer really highlighted that, wow, these protocols and these, and these businesses, they can really do cool and unique things that are actual use cases now and not just kind of moonshots, hoping that I can decentralize like Uber or something like that. Now you have these DeFi protocols and even NFTs now that are really starting to make um, real world use cases and highlight that this technology can actually be used for uh, things other than food coins or dog coins or whatever. So you've been kind of alluding to DAOs as like kind of like the hot thing you're working on right now. And for for the interviews I've conducted and every conversation I've had, DAO is kind of like art. You can't define it, but you can tell what it is when you see it. So maybe in your words, you can tell us what a DAO is. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, it is a term of art, I guess. Um, I really like the way that that Dow House terms it, and I'm probably going to garble it a little bit, but it's it's kind of like these magic internet communities that that pool around resources and assets. And I think in the most simplest way, that's exactly what it is, but it's, it, it is simple and simple is powerful and simple is, is beautiful <laughs> and simple is, has meaning in a, in a way to kind of corral around an issue or a project or, you know, whatever it is, or a crisis like that war that's happening in Ukraine. Is there a DAO that's launched that I know that there's NFTs that have launched and donations that have gone through and kind of the, the crisis has really uh, exhibited how useful blockchain and cryptocurrencies can be in times of crisis. That's exactly it. I mean, there couldn't be a better use case for, I guess, if, I don't know if it's use case is the right word, but for a DAO or Web3 technology. And I know that you're speaking with Pleaser DAO, so that they helped with Ukraine DAO, which I'm a part of. Um, we started Ukraine United DAO on the, the day after, or the day of the crisis on the on the twenty fourth even, I think it was, which is really focusing on pooling Web3 talent and and devs and kind of more like a technical approach to the crisis. So we are going to launch a hackathon called Hack for Ukraine, try to develop products and services um, that can be used in this war or in other crises in in the future as well. And that that has had really great engagement. Um, It's not, you know, we don't have a token but we are loosely um, a community, <laughs> like a magic internet community trying to do good. Do you guys have some sort of like examples of projects you would like to see people in the hackathon work on? Are there already needs of providing extra layers of Web3 technology that exist but need some fine tuning? Do you have an idea for you know what hackathon participants might engage on? Yeah, um, and we sort of have a... a, a f- fuller fleshed out list in our discord. So if you want to try to join, please hit me up on Twitter at Muchnik Yev. But we initially started with even just like building very simple interfaces, matching those who wanted to provide aid and refugees. So we set something up like that for Irish uh, volunteers matching with Ukrainian refugees. And that was you know received really tremendously. We had initially talked about peer-to-peer decentralized communication platforms as well and kind of integrating like mesh into them in case internet went down, trying to figure out solutions for authenticating where funds were being deployed, creating bots for matching those on the ground that were providing services. And then with kind of general focuses on humanitarian aid and then um, free press and censored press as well and trying to preserve that in any way that we can. Yeah, that's a that's a really diverse list of of needs and kind of identified use cases right now. And I feel like when hackathons happen, like to have that kind of path for for participants to kind of build within, it really just helps to focus and sharpen the usefulness of the tools and projects and, and applications that come out of that. One of the things I've been noticing in conversations about DAOs is there's unique ways to communicate amongst the members of the community. And there's almost different levels of communication that's needed. There's like an informal discord where people can just have kind of conversations. And then there's more of like a formal voting process, maybe a forum online where proposals can be ingrained and have like a little bit more permanence. 
as opposed to a Discord server where things can just kind of get lost in the weeds. So what are like the types of communication that you guys have with, is it Save Ukraine DAO? Uh, there's Ukraine DAO and then there's uh, Ukraine United DAO and then Unchained Fund as well. And are you a member of all of them? Mm-hmm. Okay. So what are like the types of communications that you notice that are successful across those different DAOs with the informal discussions and then the formal ones as well? Yeah, um, I am seeing, I mean, Telegram has been really one of the kind of premier ways to communicate and create like subcommittees and subgroups. Discord has been, you know, solid kind of for reaching out to the broader community. But if you really want something or like a a medium where it's more action tasked and you're, you're seeing, you know, some actual movement and some output, I think that, you know, Telegram has been great. And like what technologies are are being used for conducting votes? Are you is are these DAOs built on Ethereum? Are they built on other networks? What are the tools that are available for people who want to like use a token to vote? I mean, Gnosis um has been great and I think it's kind of has been the go-to in all of these, but mostly they're Ethereum based um DAOs. And from your experience, why do you think that is? It's hard to say from a legal perspective, but I guess from a general perspective, it's just there's a lot of plug and play, right? In like a DAO house situation or like even like syndicate. I mean, I know that it's not, it's probably not the most efficient way, but it's, you know, kind of the innovation that's that's been layered on top of Ethereum. It just seems to, I think that's been the default. I know that, you know, there's kind of more of a branch out and an effort to, to use Polygon. Near is, is doing some great things. And my understanding is that Near is a lot more like novice u- user. The, the the UI and UX is is a lot better than than Ethereum is. But I'm not you know casting any 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 kind of preference either way. I think like the more people that you can onboard and have an on ramp into this world, and you know it, it's only it's such a small percentage of people that really understand all the like the technical aspects. Like MetaMask can be really difficult in bridging and converting and all that stuff. I mean, it's not for, for the lay person. So whoever does it right, right. And and can bring on more people to be um, active without all of these like hurdles to cross. I think that's the winner. Yeah. I, I use near near has great UI. Um, sometimes it's um, when using different networks, it's a little bit of a learning curve, but I mean like, yeah, Ethereum is King and this composability is kind of, you know, when we talk with developers, they all like to have their own speed and, and way that things are done. But ultimately, having those building blocks and a network effect that surrounds it is kind of what really wins the day out. So that's why I wanted to expand this podcast to kind of get a better understanding of the lay of the cryptocurrency land. Because if all these chains succeed in the future, then interoperability is kind of the way. And you know, there's not just one vertical that, that works on blockchain or a specific blockchain. So you've been working with a lot of new folks that are working on DAOs. Are they trying to locate here in Colorado or Wyoming specifically? Like how come uh, they end up at the beginning of the funnel and end up speaking with you at Launch Legal? What's the kind of structure in our region that makes DAOs kind of incorporatable, if that's a word? Yeah, I mean, um, one, I guess just kind of as a, a legal nuance, 
you can form an entity, you can do jurisdiction shopping, right? So as a Colorado citizen, I can form my entity in Wyoming, I can form my entity in Delaware, I can go to Puerto Rico, you know, so we have that flexibility, but Wyoming and Colorado have really moved the needle on what particularly Wyoming, as we know, you know, on the regulatory front. And then Colorado has existing legislation specifically in in the cooperative statutes that that don't even need to be tinkered with. It's it's already sort of there and and the overlap between DAO principles and co-op principles align so well. And that seems to have been approved or not, maybe not approved is the right word, but um, pushed forward by the governor and then by our securities commissioner here in Colorado. So it makes it just from a regulatory perspective, it makes it a, a favorable environment as well, apart from being able to, uh, to do this jurisdiction shopping. So like, I know that there's just so much that probably goes into distilling this uh, answer into something really bite-sized, but why would a DAO want to incorporate into a legal jurisdiction? A number of reasons, including having some kind of a legal wrapper around a DAO insulates the members and the participants in, in the DAO from general liability. Otherwise, if you have a group of people working together with a concentration around a pool of assets and something goes wrong, you default to general partnership and um, a general partnership designation is basically unlimited liability for, so one partner can can have recourse or not partner, but one member or participant can have recourse against all of the others. Having kind of a legal status to a DAO as well gives you the ability to sue and get sued and, and enter into contracts. And there's no bridge at the moment that exists between that that analog and Web3 world in, in the current, um, in any current legislation, whether state or federal. Have there been any instances that come to mind of an entity or jurisdiction that has sued a DAO yet? Not that I know of. Um, I know that there was the, the first DAO in Wyoming that applied to be a public company and filed their S1. And they basically for kind of technical issues but that that filing wasn't approved. But I have not yet seen any um, lawsuits or claims against unregistered DAOs. Yeah. Despite the fact that, you know, they've been around since 2016, there's the DAO that was uh, hacked and eventually led to the split of Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. And there was still kind of talk throughout the 17, 18, 19 cycle. It didn't really seem like DAOs kind of came back to the forefront until 2020-ish and, and a lot last year. So why were the fields ripe or the seeds sown for DAOs to kind of become popular now, even though they've been around for six years at this point? I guess I would say the, the technical infrastructure right has, has grown enough to support DAOs and, and their functionality on chain that maybe we didn't quite have back in in that period i would also say you know just with that that bear market mentality i think that people weren't ready to jump in i think they were hibernating you know building and maybe that building was already happening in a, in kind of a dao structure but we just didn't have like the the formal dao tooling for management um, that we do now yeah cuz there's just so many different types of daos now um off the top of my head, I, you know, there's like the the entities like Constitution and Pleaser DAO that 
formulate around these ideals and that's what the group the members get behind then there's like treasury DAOs where there's a pool of funding and they can you know fund open source developers something like raid guild or there's a new one in the neo ecosystem that just launched called grant shares so what are some other examples of like ideals and you mentioned of course like uh, people coming together to help uh, war torn areas what are some other like ideals of types of DAOs that you've seen come across your desk uh, over the past year or two? Well, there are a lot of DAOs that are being summoned around kind of metaverse activity. Um, there are DAOs that we are seeing focusing on regenerative ag and and the environment, um, which I think is is incredibly compelling. I'm seeing gaming <laughs> DAOs. Um, pooled investment vehicles, um, obviously employment and and kind of building out a, a like a public infrastructure around that. I'm seeing producer and consumer DAOs around even like ethical clothing and and sourcing that in like a community type space. We are seeing like venture studios and accelerators um, trying to get more folks in, in this space and, and trying to figure out kind of an environment to incubate them and fund them. Um, and gosh, the list goes on for, for so long. But yeah, I mean, I think the ones that are have this mission and, and kind of social impact are the ones that I'm definitely drawn to. But there's, you name it, there's a DAO, there's a pizza DAO, there's a beer DAO, there's Oh, and and I guess I have to put in a plug for Metagamma Delta, like ones that have diversity and inclusion in mind and trying to promote that. Yeah, I know that this isn't necessarily DAO related, but I was just having a conversation with someone who's brand new to blockchain and cryptocurrency. She didn't even own anything until this year. And she's already hearing about these like formations of women empowering NFTs like I'm also super happy to have you on this podcast because you bring a experience that you know 99% of our guests that are mostly just males don't bring. So how has maybe the blockchain industry become more welcoming or embracing, or have you noticed uh, towards women, or have you noticed an increase in women that are migrating to blockchain from other industries? I, I really have, um, and it's it's amazing to see, especially having the ability to compare in like 2017 conferences to 2022 conferences, there's a higher representation of, of women minorities um, at these events. And then also just understanding that this is, you know, you can do web three full time. It's not something you just like tinker with and, and like dip your toe in the water too. So there are a lot of like female developers that are like super savvy and, been having conversations, you know, about maybe setting up a link of a fund that's focused for or focused at pulling women into like the investment space and to and, and getting them to kind of understand Web3 a little bit more too. Do you think that maybe there's a quicker transition of like degenderizing the blockchain space because of the ability for people to be anonymous online? And now you can just be a picture of a frog and no one cares about your race, sex, anything like that. So is that something that you're noticing just in this industry in particular across blockchain as a whole, as opposed to any other kind of 
innovative or cutting edge tech industry you've ever been a part of? You know, it's definitely what drew me to the space initially. Um, And that is, you know, it's more or less agnostic um, that you could access cap, especially with back to the conversation on ICOs, you can access capital without having through that, having to go through that good old boy network of like VC capital, Silicon Valley capital. And that was, I was like, wow, this is, this is a game changer. Right. And I don't, I don't have to jump through all these hoops. And I think, yeah, you you hit the nail on the head with that, that you can be some kind of anon and and contribute and people listen to you in the same way without, you know, the the gender or any other kind of filter. Yeah. I mean, it's almost as if, uh, as it should have been the entire time, like your experience and skills do all the talking. It's Yeah. It's like a renaissance in, in, in that fact. And do you think that this was brought on specifically by Web3 Technologies? Do you think this is a cultural phenomena, like we were just going to get here, even if we didn't have digital identity and blockchain and Oracle networks and all these crazy things that are making NFTs and DeFi and DAOs happen today? You know, I don't know that we would have gotten here regardless. I think that we were going like we were going down a really dangerous path and the technology has allowed us to to re-steer our course and, and go down this, like, this is the way that it's supposed to be. Um, but it's like, a self, it's a correction. And I don't think that that would have, you know, I, don't, I mean, I don't, I, I, you know, maybe there would be some other kind of technology where AI would have been able to do, do that. But in, in reality, AI doesn't do that, right? AI actually skews the other way. So yeah, maybe it is just Web3 that allows, or at least what we know of now, I don't know, maybe tomorrow it's going to be like quantum computing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really excited for one of the things that really got me into cryptocurrency and blockchain in general was uh, uh, banking the unbanked and just, you know, historically there have been institutions that were established to keep individuals from having bank accounts and from being able to participate in global networks and blockchain and cryptocurrency and all these other web3 ideals basically put the power into the hands of anybody who has a a cell phone or a laptop, you know, now you have these tools that grant anyone access to these networks um, because they're permissionless. So that's something that I'm really excited to see playing out right now. And also why I was interested to learn more about DAOs because we were talking about these good old boy networks and these structures and like this traditional corporate structure is an obvious dinosaur. Like this is something that is only around today because it's been around for the past couple hundred years. So one of the things that I'm kind of concerned about, and I say this as somebody who had a, a planning a government job, so I had the best benefits ever, and I moved over to covering blockchain, and now I'm a 1099 contractor. I lost my benefits. I have to pay for my own healthcare insurance. So one of the, I guess, reasons why corporate models still thrive today is because there are these institutional benefits that people get to uh, rely on. So I think maybe you can provide a little bit more insight into this. What are some sort of opportunities out there or other distributed organizations that are looking at the people who are coming into Web3 and they're saying, we're going to be able to provide you with 401ks, with uh, medical, eye, vision, um, dental care. Are there any sort of blossoming infrastructures that are making it possible for people to get benefits and work in like distributed autonomous organizations? Yeah, I and mean, that's sort of exactly what the Employment Commons and Opolis does. And it kind of 
John Pollard's brainchild back in, I don't know how many, how many years he's been working on this, but he's um, certainly been in the space for a long time. And it was the vision to create or to, to provide resources for the self-sovereign worker um, to create a public good infrastructure with the use of DAOs and Web3 technology. So you as a freelancer, as a 1099, can form your own LLC, join the commons as a member. Um, it's democratically run. It's um, got a progressive decentralization strategy as well that's built into its bylaws so that when it hits a thousand members, it will be fully flat and decentralized but it gives you access to things that you wouldn't have. Otherwise you'd be vulnerable. It totally shifts the power dynamic in that way as a freelancer, because now you have, you have vision and dental and life insurance and healthcare. And it's so much, it's so competitive to what like the marketplace rates are. Um, I was on the phone with somebody from California and they said that the, the savings is something like 60% a month to what you would go out and get in, in the markets. Um, which is huge for a freelancer, right? It allows them to disassociate from that traditional corporate infrastructure and have bargaining power, have negotiating power in a way that they haven't had before and feel protected. And the fact that it, it really forces these workers to go out and and wrap themselves in an LLC, I think is is really smart. I know a lot of people had just been doing it individually and potentially, you know, kind of walk around with a lot of liability. Um, Looking forward corporations provide really great benefits and, and Opolis is now making it possible for freelancers to get this. Maybe like looking towards the next step, are there any other sort of organizations or entities that are providing other resources that replace something that maybe like a corporate structure would have provided for somebody? Are you aware of anything like that? It might be too broad a question. I know. I'm sure that there are tons out there. I know, you know, there's... Um... There are resources like like accounting systems and kind of reporting platforms and things like that, like that help you stay compliant. But I think this is this is really the biggest one that was basically handcuffing employees to their employers because of this, like the benefits that they would hover over them. And I remember I first heard about Opolis in 2018. It felt like it was still so far away. And now here we are four years later, would you say that it's delivering now like a freelance employee can confidently gain a 401k in healthcare and be protected and receive some of the same benefits they would from a corporation? Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, membership is growing at um, warp speed. You can get the benefit of the work token if you join, which is based on annual payroll volume, read their off-white paper, which is actually a really solid paper that I contributed to. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, you get all of your benefits, you get paid, you can get paid in crypto and you get work tokens as well to kind of incentivize more pay- payroll volume through the system. And you're a member of a co-op, like everybody should be a member of a co-op. Well, I'm definitely interested not only because uh, I'm 1099, but also because it's Colorado grown. So I'll be talking with some ambassadors about maybe potentially migrating from market insurance to Opolis sponsored insurance. I think you'll see a big difference. Make sure you quote launch legal as your referrer. (laughs) Will do. (laughs) You get work tokens as for referring others. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds really cool. So um, kind of wrapping up, we've had 
We've heard a lot of great use cases for DAOs, uh, some ones that you're, you're particularly working on yourself, and some really interesting kind of legal perspectives as to why individuals or entities might want to incorporate as a DAO. So kind of like wrapping up, looking forward, in the next three to five years, or maybe not even in that time frame, but like, what do you see as the next steps or what's the future for DAOs? What are you excited about for them? I am excited about the volume of DAOs, right? And working through a lot of the growing pains that I've seen in the last 18 months or so. So a lot around like governance, how to work against that decline in participation. Uh, I'm excited about seeing kind of more um, innovation and more development on the tooling side as well. I think it's getting more sophisticated. Um, I am also excited to for for at least local DAOs to feel comfort in staying in the U.S. Um, in our regulatory environment. You know, it's it's very gray as we all know, and I I want to keep innovation here. I want to keep that kind of economic activity here as well. So that is my biggest goal. Um, that not everybody goes up and forms their DAO in the Caymans or in Switzerland. And I think that hopefully we're heading there. And I think that's set by precedent, right? That we're not like these DAOs are not composed of bad actors, that they are, you know, mostly people trying to do good things and and coordinate their resources and their and capital. Yeah. I, I don't know what the answer is to solving the legal gray areas, but, you know, any country that kind of blocks blockchain companies from being founded there is potentially going back to the 90s, potentially saying internet companies can't be built here. I'm not sure if the magnitude is that big or if it will be bigger, but it is definitely something that I'm concerned about. And kind of wrapping up, the name of this podcast is The Smart Economy Podcast. So this can be an answer just like DAOs. It can be anything. But what does the smart economy mean to you? Smart economy means an active economy with participants, not just bystanders. So if you stand to the side and watch watch things happen, then there is going to be a pool of interests that are not aligned with yours. And you're just passive. You can't blame anybody but yourself. So it's really engagement in the economy. Awesome. Well, I was really excited to have you join. I know that you have a plethora of knowledge and insight that I couldn't wait to pluck from your brain. So it was an honor to have you come join the newly revamped Smart Economy podcast. You have, if somebody wants to learn more about you or your business, what's the best way that they can reach out to you or learn more about Launch Legal? Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. You can follow me on Twitter at Muchnik, M-U-C-H-N-I-K-Y-E-V-Yev, or email me at yev, Y-E-V, at launch-legal.com. Awesome. Well, uh, hopefully we get to have you back on another series about uh, another blockchain topic to pick your brain. Um, And until then, I can't wait to see you again at a live blockchain event in person. Thank you. Well... What did you think of that conversation? Not only was Yev's entrance into the legal profession a unique one, but it was also really interesting to hear about the different types of projects that have sought her legal advice over the past five years. It was also intriguing to learn more about the DAOs that Yev is participating in, which are helping focus on those impacted in Ukraine by the recent war. 
And it was really cool to hear Yev describe women entering the blockchain industry as a renaissance. I hope to delve deeper into this topic in a future series. With that, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep NEO News Today in mind when voting for your NEO Council representative as a part of NEO's governance process. We appreciate you, and we look forward to catching you next time.